In this episode, I'm joined by Max Goodman. Max is 23 years old and is on his way to becoming a broker in the commercial insurance industry. Max has always had a knack for entrepreneurship, starting with flipping shoes in middle school to eventually helping run multiple e-commerce stores. In high school, Max ran an exotic car photography page that laid the foundation for his extensive, high-value entrepreneurship network. Everyone, please welcome Max. Welcome to the Abundance Mindset Podcast, where we discuss entrepreneurship and mindset design. My mission is to leave you with actual steps and inspiration to make change in your own life. Guests on the podcast will consist of millionaires, celebrities, and anyone who's adopted the Abundance Mindset. I'm your host, Nathan Iyer. Hey, Max, what's up? Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Good, how are you? Very good, man. Just knocking out some work on a Wednesday here. Good, good. You, uh, you're, are you still in New York? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm on Long Island right now, but uh, living in the city for the most part, Manhattan. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. It's a shame that we didn't get a chance to hang out while I was in New York, um, but I'll definitely be back soon. Yeah, I, I think you're here for a couple of months, but I, I we connected just on the tail end of you leaving, but we'll, we'll definitely have to get it in when you come back. Yeah, definitely. We connected because we had um, a few mutuals on Instagram. I know there are people that are also into entrepreneurship. So, you know, this, uh, welcome to the Abundance Mindset podcast. Um, I know you have a lot of experience with entrepreneurship, so I'll just kind of dive directly into that. Um, curious, or first, uh, if you could give a little background about yourself, um, you know, like how old you are, um, kind of what some stuff that you're working on is, um, and just some background. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and first off, thank you for, for having me on. Um, looking forward to being here and talking about these cool topics. So um, some background. I just turned 23 a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm from New York, from Long Island. Um, I went to college in California at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is kind of a small beach town right between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, spent three years there um, and came back to New York. Um, and I've been in the property and casualty insurance brokerage business for the past two years, which is uh, everything commercial and personal insurance brokerage related. Um, so that's the uh, that's the work situation at the moment. Yeah, that's super inter- interesting. Um, before we jump into all the insurance business related questions, um, is this the first kind of like entrepreneurship uh, venture that you've had or is just kind of um, just what you're no, working No, no. I've, I've definitely, I would say, Honestly, probably back till middle school is probably when that, I guess, bug started without me really labeling it as entrepreneurship. I guess I really didn't put that that term on it until maybe end of high school, beginning of college. But I would say going back to middle school is definitely when I um, started in the business space. Um, probably kind of the classic route, just starting with, you know, reselling sneakers and just being a sneakerhead at a young age, playing basketball, um, and then moving into the more retail space, whether it was clothing um, or just kind of general retail goods and, and doing the reselling. But that was definitely my foundation um, going into going into high school. It was never really started out of business interest. It was more so just like a passion for what the product was and then realizing that there was um, some some kind of commerce there to be done, you know, whether it was just like I wanted to trade shoes and, you know, buy something different or realizing that money was to be made and certain products held more value than others. Um, but you know, through high school, um, I was always doing that. And I 
probably stopped doing that maybe about a year ago. I'm still selling some stuff that I have, but I, I'm not currently buying anymore. Um, but going into high school is when I kind of transitioned from the more um, retail reselling space into photography. Um, and photography is also something I never got into um, for the business aspect of it, but um, ended up transitioning into that aspect of it. So originally just started out of passion just from I'm a car guy. I'm a car enthusiast. That's probably my, my biggest passion outside of business. Um, so when I was in the beginning of high school, I was just going to car shows uh, just to check out some cool supercars. And um, that snowballed into some pictures I was taking on my phone of these cars. Um, my brother had a camera that I just picked up and said, you know what, if I'm going to be taking pictures on my phone, let me at least try taking pictures on a nicer camera. Um, spent some time using that camera for a little bit. And then I slowly started investing my personal money into a nicer camera setup. I had bought probably, uh, I don't know, $600 camera at the time. Uh, did that for a couple of years and then ended up investing a, definitely a few thousand dollars into a, a much better camera setup, which started making me some money. But the value add I really saw from doing this photography on a high-end level was a lot more than networking it was bringing me than the transactional element of, of taking these photos and being paid, whether it was a couple hundred bucks for a small shooter or maybe a few hundred bucks for a bigger campaign. But the networking was was definitely the biggest element that came with that. Yeah, <clears throat> I can imagine. So someone would just like, if someone had a nice car, they'd be like, hey, I want nice pictures of my car and they would pay you a few hundred. Or was it like car show events that are hiring you to take pictures at the events? It was, it was all privately done. So my goal after a certain point was to basically stop taking pictures at car shows because that's what I had started doing was taking pictures at these car shows of them coming in or being parked. But um, it, what transitioned to me having this infatuation with the networking aspect and more so of how do these people own these cars more so than the car itself is, you know, where the interest or the dialogue with these owners came about and me wanting to start these relationships. So it was, it was a very probably eight year, eight, nine year career in this doing um, the photography and, and leveling up slowly. And what that leveling up looked like was building a portfolio and increasing the quality of my pictures as much as I could and creating that kind of digital portfolio through Instagram, um, building followers, building a page to the point where I could cold DM owner, um, have a, a mutual connection, um, make an introduction between us. And the goal was for me to basically whether it was on a weekend or outside of a car show, set up a photo shoot and do these photos of these super high-end exotic cars um, and get some one-on-one -on -one time with the owner. Um, and there was definitely some times where I, I wouldn't charge. Um, and, you know, sometimes the offers, the owners would offer to pay. Um, I would either decline or I wouldn't go into it with a attitude of wanting to be paid. And it actually definitely started a little Instagram beef at a few points um, with some pretty big photographers saying I was ruining the photography game and people were making a living for this and I was setting a different standard um, and everyone kind of had a different take. Um, but for me, I knew photography was never something I was going to do long term. It was never going to be my end all be all. Um, that wouldn't really satisfy the lifestyle I wanted to live. So I, I saw it more so as a, a launch pad for building my network and getting in front of people. So the, the end goal there was to basically be setting up these shoots um, at these guys' homes and, and having these real one-on-one -on -one experiences. Are you, are you still doing that now or no? 
No, I, I put down the camera probably almost two years ago now. Um, I, I really don't shoot anymore. Okay. Is your photography page just your personal page on Insta or you have like a separate one? No. So it was my personal page. Um, and then that's why there's still so many cars on there. It's, it's just a passion of mine and I, I'm still constantly around cars. I, I have a F80 M3 now. Um, so I'm still, you know, networking with car people, going to events, doing drives, all the fun stuff. But um, that page was originally my photography page that I kind of transitioned to uh, my personal page. Okay. That makes sense. <clears throat> That's cool. What's the, uh, I know the name is like Max Airmos. Um, what's, yeah. what's, what's Airmos? I assume that this, this is not your last name. No. So it's, it's Air Maximos. And where that comes from is, uh, my first name is Maximos, N-A-X-I-M-O-S, which is a Greek um, name. I, I just go by Max, but, um, my account name was originally L-I underscore auto, which was L-I stands for Long Island. And that's where I was doing all my photography. Um, and when I had that transition into the personal page, I obviously don't want to use that name anymore. So um, I tried getting at Maximos. That uh, username has been taken and since been taken is now an inactive account that I've spent years trying to get. And I'm, I'm not giving up on that. Um, going through some creative methods to try and obtain that one day. But um, I said, you know what? I had all Air Maxes at the time. Those were the only shoes I was wearing for like five years. So I thought, you know what? Air Maximos, um, kind of a cool spinoff Air Max, something unique and uh, still able to use my name in there. That's fair. That's fair. I actually have a friend who um, specializes in like repo operations on Instagram handles that are inactive. Um, I know they do really? something where you can you can trademark a certain uh, term. I, I don't I don't know if it's for names, but you can trademark a term. And then you can like go to Instagram and be like, hey, this is my trademark term. Um, this account is infringing on it. And then Instagram will like take down their account. Um, okay. I don't know if, if you I might have to done that approach. But yeah, I'll definitely connect you after that. Yeah, that would be super. I've a lot of people, if there's an Instagram handle they want to get and it's taken, I think a lot of people just go as far as sending a DM and saying, hey, I'd like this username or hey, I'd like to purchase this username for whatever it be. And then people kind of stop there when they don't get um, a response. But I'm a pretty persistent person when I want to get something done. So I kind of went through every creative measure I could possibly think of, which included almost DMing. So this person follows no people. There's no information in the bio. So sometimes if there's like a name or any kind of um, cookie crumb trail of things you can use to, to get in contact, but there is no information. So they don't follow anyone. They have about 500 followers. So I ended up DMing about every single person um, asking if they know the owner of the account, if they could put me in touch, I'm interested in buying it. I got responses from dozens of people. No one knows who the owner of this account is. I don't know how I ended up following this person. Um, I went as far as going on Facebook and LinkedIn and looking up every single person in the world named Maximos um, and DMing them and messaging them and saying, do you have any leads on you know, who owns this Instagram account? Um, I've exhausted damn near every, every resource I could, but that's crazy. Um, still not giving up. Still not giving okay. up. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. Um, I might be able to help with that. Um, but yeah, for sure. anyway, so you were taking all these pictures of, um, cars and now you're not doing that. You pivoted to the insurance industry. Um, how, uh, you said two years ago, how, how did that happen? Um, kind of like, where did all that come from? Yeah, it's, the in most interesting thing about that is most people that end up in the insurance space um, either A, have friends or family that are in the space and kind of bring them in 
um, or typically people just accept a job at a college um, that maybe isn't their first choice, but it's either decent paying or puts them in a location they want. You know, insurance isn't a very sexy business, so a lot of people aren't really driven towards it. Um, but so I guess where my transition into the insurance space came about was I was going to school for industrial engineering um, at Cal Poly, which for people who don't know, industrial engineering is basically the more business side of engineering in the sense that it's systems optimization, process efficiency, really focused on back end and um, how to just make everything a smoother process and a smoother business. So that was always enhancing my, my business appetite. Um, and I had started learning a little bit about the insurance space um, just through some people. And what I quickly learned was the insurance brokerage business model is actually a phenomenal business model. And it's actually a really good business. Um, once you kind of get past the, it's not such a sexy business concept. Um, I know a lot of people who are in the digital marketing space say the same thing. It's not a very sexy business. It's just an agency and it's a lot of um, grinding day-to-day -day work. Um, but what makes the insurance brokerage space so um, interesting to me is a couple factors, one of them being the business model. So unlike a real estate agent where every year you're starting from zero and you have to go basically acquire a new business on January 1st to, to build your business and put food on the table, um, in the insurance brokerage space, you're constantly building. Um, so you know, let's say you acquire $500,000 worth of premium, you know, you could essentially do nothing after that. And assuming you maintain your business the next year, when all those policies hit their renewal dates, you're still paid on your commission. So um, you're, you're constantly building on your book of business and, and stacking um, the building blocks for that. So long-term, you know, it's, it's a very slow moving uh, train in the beginning, but once you're five, 10, 15 years plus down the line, um, the business starts to uh, exponentially grow um, and the referrals and your network um, just really start to build and, and you'll definitely see what a phenomenal business it is monetarily down the line. Um, but outside of the money aspect, what really clicked for me in the insurance brokerage space was the fact that it's still very technical. Um, there's still a lot of numbers and technical aspects of it. Um, it's, it's, you can be general with it. You might not be very successful at it, but it's the people who specialize and go super deep into, um, different industries within the insurance space that find themselves being successful. So having that engineering background and being a very technically and number driven person, um, that really interests me. And another super cool piece about the business is practically everyone and everything needs insurance. Um, so whether you're an individual, um, you know, if you're doing personal lines insurance, it's your home, your car, your jewelry, um, umbrella policies for high net worth individuals, Every individual will need insurance and every business needs insurance, whether it's a standard business owner's policy, um, if you're a brick and mortar store, um, if it's uh, a cyber um, you know, policy for, for more online businesses. Um, so the, the general application is so wide, right? So it allows you to really steer in different directions with what interests you. Um, so what I mean by that is for me, having my car background, when I originally went into this business, um, I was kind of of the mindset that I want to be the specialist for exotic cars. I want to be on personal lines and I want to be the guy for, um, exotic car insurance, which sounded great at the time. I learned a little bit more. And as I was getting more experience, 
I realized personal lines is not something I wanted to be in so much. And I wanted to move to commercial lines, which was business insurance. Um, however, a successful insurance broker um, creates a sticky relationship with their client and, and they're doing the full coverage of business. Um, so, you know, personal lines is always something I'm going to be involved with, but spending more time on commercial lines as that's a lot more B2B. Um, I think the mindset and the process of working um, in a service-based business with another business versus an individual um, on the, on the customer side, um, it's a very different experience and the B2B is definitely the space I want to be in moving forward. So how, um, how far along are you in your insurance? Uh, like is, is it called insurance agency? Is that the name? Uh, yeah, yeah, essentially the different brokerage agencies, um, are, you know, what the entity is, um, Another common misconception is the difference between a carrier and a brokerage. Um, so companies on the personal line side, like State Farm, Echo, Progressive, Travelers, right? Those are all pretty uh, run-of-the-mill auto insurance carriers, right? And do home insurance as well. And then you have your more premium carriers like Chubb, Pure, AIG, Cincinnati, and Berkeley um, that most people have never even heard of because it's still kind of beyond closed doors. But those are the carriers, right? Those are the companies that put together the insurance product and have the actual insurance that people are going to buy. So where I come in on the brokerage side is basically connecting the carrier with the client. So um, like any broker, you're working for the client um, and shopping the market for what's the best policy and the best coverage um, for that client. And then you essentially go to your you know, portfolio of carriers and say, okay, this is my client's um, risk what policy here is going to best fit their needs. So, you know, a lot of people think of insurance and they think of the carrier side, for example, um, but I'm on the broker side, um, which I'm a little biased towards, but, um, you know, the, the broker is basically working for the client. That makes sense. So you have your own brokerage or you work with a brokerage? I don't, I don't. Um, I'm with a brokerage. Um, the <laughs> That's one of the things that, um, about the insurance space with entrepreneurship um, is that, insurance space is a very antiquated business it's been around for you know hundreds of years and it's not really a business that you can self-teach um in the sense that you can go out on your own very quickly whereas um i kind of always just go back to digital marketing i had a little bit of experience in that space um but like paid advertising that's a lot of trial and error um and and figuring out what works um and, and teaching yourself a little bit that's something that's a little bit easier to kind of handle on your own so you won't really see too many um, insurance brokerage owners that are under the age of 25 just because you, you know, if, if you want to be a, a dangerous and successful player in the space, you really need to have some proper industry knowledge um, and time with a firm to really understand what you're doing. Um, if, if you want to start your own firm, yeah, you could maybe be selling super low end car insurance um, and maybe not doing the best coverage and, and doing way more quantity over quality. Um, but given that I want to go into the commercial space and be doing um, much larger businesses and go for the quality aspect, um, you definitely want to have some proper education with a firm um, to, uh, you know, re really know what you're doing, essentially. That makes sense. So <clears throat> your day to day is uh, sourcing leads of like commercial companies <clears throat> that are interested in insurance through paid uh media as well as like other forms would that be accurate um paid media is, doesn't play a huge role 
um, for most insurance producers. So, you know, on the brokerage side, you have your producer, which is essentially the sales role. Um, those are the people that are bringing in new business on commission. And then you have the account management side, which um, manages the book of business and handles all the day-to-day -day activity, whether it's getting a policy set up um, or changing anything on the policy, um, you know, endorsements, stuff of that sort. So um, I'm on the production side, which is the new business side. Um, you know, it's it's a mix of many different methods of obtaining new business, just like any other service-based industry. But, um, you know, having my background through exotic cars um, luckily has put me in a position where I'm exposed to many business owners. Um, you know, many of these, it was something I quickly learned and why I wanted to con continue developing with the exotic car photography was learning that all these car owners were, were business owners, entrepreneurs themselves, um, and typically weren't working um, in a corporate setting or working for someone else to be getting there. Um, so that, that put me in contact with a lot of different business owners. Okay. That makes sense. And have you, um, been able to like insure a company yet so far? Yeah. So, so to, to sell insurance, you need to get your license. You need to get your property and casualty license. Um, so the first, uh, kind of two years of my experience were a lot more on the account management side. Um, not the sales side. So really understanding what the day-to-day -day on the business was and really learning the product. Um, I just finished studying for my property and casualty insurance license, which I just need to sit for that final exam now. Um, and I'm actually in between firms at the moment. So as of end of June, I resigned from the firm I was at um, as there was not a ton of long-term vision uh, moving into a producer role. And there were a little cookie cutter and what their uh, and what their vision was. So um, you know, within the next couple of weeks, I'm have some offers and having some conversations now in some other firms, um, to get into that producer seat. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was actually a, um, real estate agent before in Dallas. So I like have experience with, um, being like a sales or not a salesperson, but working under a brokerage and having a commission mm -hmm. structure and kind of, I, I guess there's some parallels between insurance and real estate. Um, so in the meantime, are you, outside of insurance, are you like doing anything else to sustain your lifestyle? I know like you live in Manhattan. Um, I like lived a few months in Manhattan. I know it's like pretty expensive. Are you like, do you do any um, investing or anything else? And a quick note before you answer that, when doing my research on you, I noticed that there's like a really big NFT account that um, like likes your photos. And I think you guys follow each other. I was wondering if you're into the whole crypto NFT space at all. What's the what's the NFT account? It's called NFT Savage. Um, I actually never heard of them. It has like, I don't know, random note. It has uh, like almost six hundred k followers. I just saw it like. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking at them now. Um, likes likes your pics. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, they I, follow I, me. I don't follow them. Okay, maybe, maybe they're trying to. Say I'm it. actually possibly. Kind of a hot take here is I'm I'm not a crypto guy I'm not an NFT guy um, I'm not a stocks guy um, crypto and, and NFTs were something that you know I, at this point I still very well believe they could have application down the line and and be of value um, but I'm of the mindset that you can't do everything um, and I'd rather focus on one or two things and be really good at that than um, try and do everything else and 
in this day and age, it's extremely easy to kind of get that shiny ball syndrome when something new pops up, whether it's NFTs or crypto, and there's always a new hot thing, right? Um, everyone's starting an NFT project. Everyone's worried about the next coin taking off. Um, I don't see that being something sustainable. If that's your one kind of side hustle, side interest, something you want to do um, on some after hours, I think that's cool. But for me, I would really focus on something that um, I see has some long-term kind of enterprise value for me that I can um, kind of put all my time into. Um, so cryptos and NFTs was never something I really got into. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, um, for your insurance uh, brokerage agency, does that take like how many hours a week do you spend working on that? Uh, it's full-time. It's, it's more than 40 hours a week. Um, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends how you look at it, right? Um, like I've said, I'm, I'm almost would call myself a serial networker at this point. I just enjoy meeting as many people as I can and learning about what they do um, and seeing where value can be provided. So whether that's, you know, after work hours or at a car show on the weekend, um, you know, my, my brain in that sense never turns off. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, where can I be applying myself and, and what's potential a new business, right? Um, someone you just meet what could seem socially at whatever instance they could be owning a business that, you know, could need your services. So, um, I, I would say it's definitely a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, um, and did you complete college or did you, uh, not? So technically no. Um, so I, like I said, I went to Cal Poly for three years, um, 2020 when COVID hit, I'd come home. Um, I actually had all my stuff in California still. I really was convinced that was coming back in two weeks when that COVID wave first hit. Um, so I'd left my car there um, at my uncle's house in Los Angeles. I had everything still at my apartment in San Luis Obispo. Um, four or five months went by and I was saying to myself, wow, I, I don't think I'm going back. Um, so I, I had my roommates package up all my stuff in Home Depot boxes and ship it across the country. Um, I had my uncle load up my car onto a onto a trailer um, and everything was shipped to me. Um, and that was kind of how I wrapped up at Cal Poly. Um, and I ended up taking, um, when I had that shift of not wanting to move into the engineering space, just as I wanted something more relationship-based, um, you know, that's when I kind of came across the insurance brokerage world, but still wanted to finish school. I was so close to being done. Um, and I, you know, engineering degree definitely had some credibility. Um, so I started taking some online classes and ended up transferring all my units. Um, so technically have four more classes, um, of all online stuff. It's pretty low time investment school is much easier than it was at Cal Poly. So, um, probably December, I will technically have my degree. My, my parents will definitely be proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's exciting. Um, are you, are you, your parents also into like cars or in the insurance space or no? No, um, neither of them are in the insurance space. Um, my dad has, he was always kind of into cars. He had a couple Harleys when he was in his early twenties. Um, you know, always loved that, but I would definitely say when I started to get the car bug, maybe 10 plus years ago, um, you know, he was the one, when I was really young driving me to these car shows. So he was pretty exposed to it as well. Um, and I think just through that and seeing what a passion I had for that, um, he slowly kind of gained the knack for it um, and has become a little bit of a car guy himself. Okay. 
Yeah, super interesting. And you're um you're from your your parents are also from New York, and you're from New York. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So my mom um is from where I grew up now in the South Shore, Nassau County. Um, and my dad uh, is originally from Queens. Um, and they're they're both CPAs by background, so they had met at an accounting firm they were working at when they were probably in their late twenties, early thirties. That's cool. Um, is your brother also into cars insurance space? No, he is not. We are we are polar opposites. He's definitely more on the uh, on the art side of things. Um, yeah. I was kind of always into sports and and cars growing up, um, and he was definitely more into the arts um, side of things. But we're uh, as far as interests go, we're we're pretty much on different ends. Okay, that's super interesting. Um, so I guess like you pretty good at networking you know a lot of people through um you know like exotic cars and uh other ventures um i was wondering do you have like any advice um for the people listening on like best ways to talk to to network with um like kind of people that are interested in a non-conventional path not really like go to college work nine to five but rather do something whether it be like start a business or um you know, what you're doing with insurance, um, brokering, um, as someone who's like found a lot of success in the area of networking with those type of people, do you have any advice? Yeah. The comes to networking in more creative ways. Um, I would say find a common interest, um, and, and run with that. Um, cars are a pretty big niche in the sense that, if you're into cars, you're, you're probably pretty into cars. Um, and if you're at these car shows and doing stuff like that, it's probably a pretty big interest of yours. Um, and you speak to any car guy and they completely geek out on it and they could talk for hours and it doesn't matter who you are. Um, so I almost call it like a weak spot where um, if you can find um, something that someone just genuinely has a passion for and you can relate on that and uh, there's almost, there's, there's no sales aspect to that. There's, you're not getting anything out of someone. You're just genuinely sharing a similar passion or interest. Um, I think that's the best way to build your network and, um, relate to someone. And for me, um, that's just some, I, I didn't specifically go after cars originally for the network or whatever it be. I just always was into exotic cars. I thought they look cool. I, I love driving and I, you know, became an addict for it. And I just by being associated, realized that, you know, what a phenomenal place it is to network. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say pick up an interest just to network or pick up an interest in something that could be high value for that, that benefit of it. Um, whether it's art, whether it's reading, whether it's yoga. Um, you know, I, I know some people who just go to expensive gyms, um, and they're really into fitness and they just network with people there um, through that. But I would definitely say the biggest thing is finding some common, common ground of interest, um, that you can then relate to that person on. Yeah, that's, that's solid advice. Um, for you at your insurance, um, brokers, so you said right now you're not working for any brokerage. You're kind of like interviewing different, uh, brokers to work at. Exactly. So at the moment, um, I'm in between firms right now. Okay. I think like the insurance industry is definitely something that is kind of behind closed doors for most people. Um, just cause like, you know, everyone kind of knows what insurance is, but no one really knows how the industry operates partly cause it's not super sexy. Um, in your role are 
um like what like would you be called an agent of the broker or no um i mean it depends what you're saying who that who that name is to right because there's a lot of different nomenclature out there whether you're a producer or a broker or an agent um but you know a, a lot of people like to call themselves risk advisors um which i'm not particularly opposed to a lot of people um are opposed to when people call themselves risk advisors because they feel like it's deceptive in a sense that um, it tries to hide the fact that you are trying to sell insurance at the end of the day. Um, however, my personal belief is that um, if, if you're selling, if you're trying to sell on price and you're trying to sell someone a cheap state farm policy for their um, Subaru BRZ, um, you know, you're probably not a risk advisor. Um, but if you are selling a business um, a policy that's going to cost them a few hundred thousand dollars um, and it could be E&O or D&O insurance and there's some serious risk going on in that business and you've spent years and years educating and learning about the different nuances, I think it's a lot more applicable to call yourself a risk advisor um, because at a certain point, you are more so an advisor to that client on what their risk is really than just um, you know selling them something to sell. I know as a real estate agent, were paid or I was paid like fully on commission as a risk advisor. Is it, is that kind of how the structure is? It's just a commission job or is it like you're a salaried person at the brokerage and then you get a share of the profit? Yeah. So typically what it is um, for most people that are, are producers in the business, um, you're strictly on commission. It's, it's you eat what you kill. Um, I know a lot of firms though have salaries when you're first getting into a production role given that it, it does take years to really build the book of business. It's, um, it's a really, really slow moving business. It, it might be, I'm trying to think of another business that's more slow moving, but um, as far as if you just look at an exponential graph, I think it's so applicable because the first few years are so slow moving. And then just as that ball starts getting a little bit more weight behind it, it really starts to take off. Um, but a lot of producers are on salary in the beginning. Um, some firms have, you know, your salary plus your commission and whatever it is. Um, other firms have these draws where you have your salary. Um, and then essentially you're not making any commission on the business you're bringing in until your commission hits what your salary is. And then your salary drops off. Um, definitely different models for different firms. Um, but typically, you know, as you're a more seasoned um, broker, you're, you're strictly on commission. That makes sense. So since it takes a few years to pay off in the meantime, like in the next few years, do you like have anything else that you, you need to work on to like, kind of like sustain yourself monetarily wise? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, after, you know, when I had come home from, from Cal Poly um, and I wasn't working, um, you know, there was COVID was pretty heavy and there was definitely a little bit more time on my hands. Um, and, and that was a little bit before I knew I wanted to go into this business. So I definitely was um, trying some different things. Um, kind of my last year or two at Cal Poly, um, my roommate and I had kind of collaborated strengths. He was on the more digital marketing end, doing paid advertising, SEO um, for small businesses. And I had had that content creation background. So we, we came together um, and we had, you know, it, it was more so his business, but I'd come in and, and started helping. We we're doing digital marketing. Um, and social media management for automotive dealers um, that were local um, to where we were going to school. And we definitely had some traction with that. 
Um, and that was, you know, probably the real first business that was B2B that I was doing outside of the reselling. Um, and that was just such invaluable. It really was sales experience because, you know, we were going in cold um, to dealerships and pitching them on our services and um, bringing our material and why uh, we think they should work with us and what our value add is there. Um, so, you know, that was um, one of my first ventures. For those listening, the Zoom just ended, so we just opened a new Zoom. Um, but kind of going back to where we're, you have this digital, um, like digital marketing agency that you're helping automotive dealerships with, um, but it's more of your friend's business than yours. And you, are you're still involved with that now, or no? No. So that was that was a digital marketing agency he had started, um, and I kind of came in. Um, to help with some of the content creations and uh, and sales aspect of it. Um, but that kind of dissolved. Um, it was towards the tail end of that, you know, we, we both were still best friends, but he he was staying more in that space. And I knew that wasn't a long-term space for me. Um, and that's, you know, towards the tail end um, of when I ended up leaving Cal Poly. But um, he ended up merging forces with um, his current business partner. They're running a business called Shop Accelerator where, um, they're doing paid advertising for kind of auto body um, and kind of PPF ceramic kind of detail shops um, and they're having ultra success with that. But um, when I had come home from, from COVID and was just looking to do something in the meantime and make some money, um, I kind of had gotten back into that space um, and was working with a couple shops where it was a little bit more of um, social media management and content creation um, for a shop that was doing um kind of in-home theater build outs and you know kind of living spaces as well as on um, the other end of their business was um same thing kind of ppf ceramic um wrap shops so um that's something i was working with for a little bit um that i had some success with but um even to this day i'm, I'm still doing a little bit of reselling on the side um i had just sold a, a rolex daytona um a white balloon oyster flex um, it's just something I, I love doing, um, and I'm always kind of doing it on the side, but slowly kind of phasing out of that as I'm starting to focus more and more, um, on the insurance space. Is, um, the shop accelerator person, is that Caleb? Uh, it's my friend Caden Phipps. Caden. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, he, he's like, he has a, a following on Instagram, right? I think, I feel like I've come across this page before or shop accelerator. Yeah. So yeah. So shop accelerator, um, is his business um, with uh, his business partner, Kieran O'Brien. Um, and then I, I think I was briefly telling you about Kieran O'Brien's um, other business with his business partner, Casey Adams, called Media Kits, um, which is essentially that real-time kind of digital resume for content creators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking at Shop Accelerator right now. Yeah, I've definitely seen this page somewhere before. I see Cadence um, followed by Iman. Uh, Gotzi, are, are are they friends? Just curious. Yeah, um, I think what I think it was maybe a year or two ago. Um, his business partner Kieran is is good friends with Iman, um, and they were just catching a, a layover in uh, in London. I think they were just grabbing lunch or something. Okay, yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, on the watch side, I know that. <clears throat> so when I was in New York, I was interning at Bloomberg, and mm -hmm. Bloomberg they have, you know, the Bloomberg terminal, their finance product within the Bloomberg terminal, there's a marketplace. Are you familiar with it? It's called Posh. Um, I don't believe so. 
Okay, well, basically everyone that has a Bloomberg terminal, generally it's like high net worth individuals just because the terminal is like tens of thousands of dollars per year. So they have a marketplace called Posh where people can list like exclusive listings on Posh that only other terminal users can see. So a lot of it is luxury apartments. Um, someone listed a private island in the past. Wow. Um, when I was there, it's like a lot of luxury products, like, you know, like Louis Vuitton stuff, Gucci stuff, all that type of thing. Um, but I noticed there's a ton of watches on the Bloomberg terminal in New York all the time. Like it was like dozens of watches. Sometimes there are multiple watches posted every day. Um, and I realized that like New York is a crazy scene for like the watch dealer industry. Like so much of it happens in New York. Um, and I was wondering, like, I see like a lot of it's Rolexes, um, and like other high ends, I'm not super familiar with watches, so I don't really know. But um, I was wondering, like, is that like a super like there's just a bunch of watch dealers all in New York that are all just not flipping watches, but maybe like trading watches back and forth. I'm kind of like, what's your take on the industry? Just something I'm curious about. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt that over the past couple of years, the watch market has probably hit the highest high it ever has, um, you know, almost ever. Um, just, you know, when over the past couple of years with this supply chain effect, um, and how a lot of goods have shot up in value, you could see the same deal with cars, um, you know, Porsches and Lamborghinis and Ferraris are, are going for, you know, way more than they ever have even used. Um, and a, a similar effect was kind of seen with the watches where, um, my take on it is that a lot of people that, have money, you know, we're making even more money in these times. Um, and they were just spending their money because there maybe wasn't as much to do in the beginning. Um, and I think there was a little bit more of a spread in the wealth gap for sure. Um, so these watch prices started to just go absolutely insane. I mean, um, you know, watches that were trading at $50,000 are now going for $150,000, $200,000. Um, so I think maybe a portion of the reason you see that is because, you know, people kind of flock to where the money is. And I think, you know, with the watch market boom, um, a lot of people saw it as a great space to get into um, and, and started making good money. Um, I think when the tide pulls back as it slowly is, um, and you're seeing a lot of the watch prices start to drop, um, you know, a lot of these dealers that maybe just picked it up um, a couple of years ago might not be able to sustain and make it through, um, you know, compared to the people who've been in the watch game for five plus years when, you know, before the boom happened and they really know how that market is. Um, but I mean, New York City in general is just such a, a high traffic area. There's just a lot of money in the city. So, um, you know, any big city is probably going to have a lot of commerce for for watches and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, Rolexes are particularly popular. I mean, a lot of people, that's where their knowledge stops is they just think nice watch and they think Rolex. And, you know, as you kind of peel back another layer of the onion, people know about Patek Philippe and Audemars. Um, Richard Meal, and then you peel back another layer and people start to learn about A-Lying and FP Journe, and then you start to get more towards the watch enthusiasts who um, know watches for really what they are versus people that just see, you know, Antonio Brown wearing a Richard Meal and people um, think that's the coolest thing on the planet. Um, but the watch, the watch market's a pretty crazy game. Yeah, it sounds like it's really crazy. Because um, I, I can imagine, like, I feel like that's such, like, a high risk like flip unless you really understand it just in terms of like money like it's not like flipping shoes like you have to really like trust and believe that like okay this watch has some intrinsic value and it's going to hold value 
Um, are you the watches that you just sold? Is that something like you've had these watches for a long time or it's kind of like a quick flip type situation? No, it was, I, I didn't have it for super long. Um, and there was a, a pretty good opportunity to, to sell it. So I had ended up doing that. Um, but you know, what, what you had to say about it being, a, it's a high ticket. I mean, it's the same, you know, Chrono 24, um, is, is a baseline. A lot of people use to see it's, you know, I don't want to call it the stock X of the watch world, but it kind of gives you a inflated ballpark of what a watch is worth. Um, you know, if it doesn't give you the exact value, it at least gives you a comparative value compared to other pieces, but it's essentially the same, you know, process um, as it is selling a Yeezy. It's just a higher ticket item. Um, you know, if you're buying a Yeezy at retail for 250 bucks and you're flipping it for 450, you're obviously making your 200 bucks and that's, for some people, a lower a lower risk investment, um, or if you're buying a Submariner for thirteen grand and flipping it for twenty grand, um, you know it's a higher risk, higher reward. Um, but there's there's plenty of data and market support, and it's the, the quantity is so high that um, you know I, I don't think it's as volatile as people think when it comes to flipping watches. Man, that's super industry. Yeah, it's super interesting. Definitely industry I don't know, or a lot of people don't know a lot about. Um, but yeah, anyway, Max, those were pretty much all the questions that I had for you or like the topics, um, that I wanted to cover. Is there kind of any final thing you wanted to say to all the, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people that watch or listen to podcasts are kind of, you know, young people in their twenties that are, you know, seeking a career, not, it's not as traditional kind of any, uh, advice for someone that's maybe hasn't found the same success as you have so far. Yeah, I would, a couple of things I would say is um, a big thing is just try new things. Um, a lot of people are, you know, like I said, hit by that shiny ball syndrome when they want to go towards what's popular and what's sexy and what's cool in the given time. Um, but to find something you really enjoy and you're good at, it just takes trying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different things and having conversations with hundreds of people and just being open and being a sponge. Um, at a young age, the biggest thing I could say is just take in as much information as you can and learn about as many different industries as you can and just, you know, your, your world knowledge. Um, and to kind of transition off that is, um, you know, a lot of people go into, you know, I'm not knocking it. Um, you know, I, I did it at one point too, but a lot of people just go into a business where they think it's a quick money grab or it's something popular now and they see everyone doing it. Um, and you know, maybe the fact that you see everyone doing it means it's oversaturated. And I think, um, the insurance world is a great example of not that because so many people stay away from that because it's just not an appealing business off the rip when people hear insurance. Um, and it's a very slow moving business and people want that instant gratification. Um, so I think being open-minded to industries that, um, aren't exactly what you think of when it, you know, stocks or crypto or what's hot right now. Um, there's a lot of application and other things. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a slow moving, slow moving train. There's, there's no substitute for that 1% every day and putting in the work uh, um, year after year. It's, you, you know, you're, it's not going to happen over a year or two. It's going to take at a minimum five years of, of putting in a little bit more every single day to really get to that point. Um, so just being consistent over a long period of time and staying persistent with it um, and not giving up and, and, you know, maintaining that long-term vision, um, I think will get you there. Great advice. Yeah. Um, I completely second that. I agree, especially the 1% every day type of mindset. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, Max, I appreciate you taking the time to come on my podcast. 
um, with that. Uh, thank you for coming on, man. Of course. Thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate you having me.